Well, good morning. It's an absolute joy to be here today to share the Word of God with you. Uh, it's just such a nice thing that, you know, an hour and 15 minutes or so up the road, uh, God's people are there and Pastor Kurt is preaching away. Uh, we start at 11 o'clock, so he's probably into his sermon a little bit by now. And it's a thrill to be here to fellowship with you, to share the truth of God. Um, it's always a difficult thing when you're going somewhere to preach because you, you're never quite sure what to preach. And I've never yet heard a little whisper in my ear uh, saying, preach this passage. I've never heard that. Uh, so you always think, well, I preach. I don't know the folks, uh, what they're going through, what the trials are, what the issues are. And uh, I thought that I would preach a sermon that I, I brought to my own people in January up in Riverside, and I hope it was an encouragement to them. And I want to encourage you today as we turn to just a couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 15, but the text will be verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 1, but we'll read from verse 15. Let's hear the word of God. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might appreciate in a deeper, in a richer way, his glory and indeed his work on our behalf. We know that some are in our gathering this morning with trials and temptations that are pulling them every which way. We know that some are here this morning feeling a sense of your encouraging blessing. Lord, we're all in a different place, but we know where we need to be. We need to be at the foot of Calvary, considering what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Open our eyes, therefore, and let us see Jesus in his name. Amen. The church at Ephesus had sprung up in what could well be described as one of the most sinful and wicked cities in the early New Testament days. There was a whole lot of sin going on in a whole lot of cities. We all know about Corinth. I'm sure we're familiar with the depravity of that place. But the truth is, Ephesus was especially a place of gross immorality, 
of open wickedness, of in-your-face evil and idolatry and just all kinds of lurid things going on in that city, but not behind closed doors, as I say, in-your-face. It was that kind of city. There was a lot of what we would call witchcraft. They didn't use that term back then, but there was uh, occultish activity. There was a a lot of demonic influence in the city. There was a a fanatical devotion to the goddess Diana. Uh, You see, her temple was in the city of Ephesus. It was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, which means it was ornate, it was huge. It was a place that people from all over the known world would have traveled to in order to participate in the worship of Diana. Not that all of the worshipers of Diana were worshipers of Diana. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, you see, the worship of Diana was full of just immoral uh, practices. I don't want to say too much about it, right? You can just well, don't even picture it, right? Don't even imagine it. It, it, it was, it was a, a, an activity that was engaging in all kinds of horrible things. So people who didn't really worship Diana would go and worship Diana just so that they could have a blast, so to speak, uh, as they might have saw it, so that they could engage in the activities of the worship. And most of them, when they would leave the city of Ephesus, they would go about their business elsewhere and they would forget all about Diana until the next big crazy party when they would go and worship Diana. You get the idea? But the people of Ephesus were fixated on worshiping Diana. Even though the visitors from out of town were, you know, there for the fun of it, the people of Ephesus loved Diana. Why? Because in part, she brought a lot of money into the city. Because all these out-of-towners would come, and they would party, they would spend their money, they would worship, right? Uh, and then they would go home having uh, left all their money behind in Ephesus. So the people of Ephesus loved Diana very, very much. The idea that she brought prosperity was actually a fact. They could show you items in their house that they would never have been able to purchase if it wasn't for the worshippers coming to worship Diana. They were living well off of this goddess. And as such, the atmosphere of the city was very sinful, very fleshy, very evil, very in your face. Las Vegas, Nevada had not a patch on the worship of Diana and all that went on in the city of Ephesus. And so the apostle Paul is writing to the church and he wants them to be helped because he knows they're living in this this horrible environment, this sordid atmosphere. They're living there. They're They're having to resist temptation there every single day. They're having to seek to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the gospel and of Christ and so on every single day in that environment. And he's thinking, oh, I pray for you folks. I pray for you. And he says much about his prayer. We don't have time to go into it all today by any means. But he makes it clear that he prays that their eyes would be opened. Now that might not be the sort of prayer we would first think about. We might think, no, maybe he should pray, Lord, would you close their eyes? 
because there's all kinds of wickedness and all sorts of tantalizing temptations out there, maybe the best prayer would be, Lord, would you just blind your people so they don't see this and that and the other thing? But that's not how he prays. Now, sometimes it's right to pray that kind of prayer when surrounded by all kinds of temptation. For example, the psalmist said in Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And he also says in Psalm 119, verse 37, by way of a prayer, he says, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. So there are times when it's a a right and a proper and a good thing to say, Lord, I don't want to see. But that's not what Paul prays here. Paul actually prays the opposite. And he says, Lord, would you open their eyes? There in verse 18, he wants their eyes to be open. And he wants their eyes to be open to see some of the wonderful truths and the rich benefits that they now have in Christ Jesus. It wouldn't be enough if they just didn't notice the sin that was going on all all around them. That would lead to nowhere good in and of itself. But what they really need first and foremost is to see the riches, the treasure, the beauty, the glory of the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for them. He knows that if the spirit of God opens the eyes of believers, then they'll see the things of earth grow strangely dim. That's the order. Lord, show them what you've done for them, what you have provided for them in Christ Jesus. And then as they see Christ, the things of this world will indeed grow strangely dim in comparison to it. I'm of the opinion that we of God's people find ourselves in a world that's sort of similar to the one that the Ephesians lived in. Maybe not even as in your face on a daily basis, but due to the fact that we've got our cell phones, that have got smartphone capabilities, and we've got the internet at our fingers really 24-7 if we want it, this age in which we live when everything that the world can give us is potentially in our face, And the temptation often is to let it be in our face. There's a sense in which we need to pray, Lord, close our eyes. Lord, help us to turn away from the nonsense and from the foolishness. But there's also a sense in which we need to say, but Lord, before you close our eyes, would you open our eyes? So that we might see more and might appreciate in a richer way the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than seeing the glitter of this world's pleasure as being attractive, if we would but see him and see what he has done, there's a real sense in which the world will fade even in that context. Now, some Christians in days gone by have decided, well, the answer to the temptation that lies around us is to run away and to hide in some little out of the way place and set up a colony and put up big walls and cut ourselves off from those who live in the outside world and if we do that we'll be safe and of course they make one mistake and they forget that if they run away and build a big wall guess who's inside that wall they are with their sinful heart and with their tendency to love even the world that's behind a big wall that they've constructed. It doesn't work. 
And then there's some other Christians think, well, the answer is we need to really be up with it. We need to be cool when it comes to what the world's saying and doing. We need to really be abreast of the latest trend in fashion. We need to make sure that we are the, the hipster of the hipster if hipster is hip. Uh, we need to be really in there knowing what the latest jargon is, what the latest terms are, what the latest phrases are. And some Christians think that's the answer. We need to be in there. And of course, as they do that, they're going to find that the world is attractive and it draws them and it's cleverer than them and it lures them and they're going to get caught up with it. I told this story to my church and, and it was, it was uh, in January when the Grammys were on, the night before I preached this sermon in Riverside. Right? This is how stupid and crazy we can be and how luring the world can be. The night before I preached this sermon, I had been thinking about this all week. About the eyes of our understanding being opened to see the great things that Christ has given us. And the Lord's day I was going to preach this was the day of the Grammys. Now, I've heard of the Grammys all my life and I've never really bothered with it. And I wasn't sure what exactly it was. I thought it might have been something to do with movies. Now I know it's something to do with music, right? And the, the Saturday, the day before the Lord's Day, when I was about to preach this, I went on to the internet, to the site I get my news from, and I saw Grammys tomorrow. And I'm like, Grammys? And then I read an article on it. And that was five minutes. I'm like, oh. Oh, so what does Lady Gaga say about Miley Cyrus? Oh, and I read that. And then, oh, who's the hot favorite to get female or male vocalist? And I read that. And I spent about 15 minutes reading utter rubbish, <laughs> thinking that it was necessary. While I was reading it, thinking it was necessary, I know this. And then I realized, hold on a wee minute. What am I doing? I don't even care about the Grammys. <laughs> I, I have no interest in Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga and whoever else. I don't care about them as far as their music and what they're feeding this world. I can't stand them, in fact. And there I was, hooked in, sucked in, drawn in, thinking for a few moments, I need to know. I need to know. What's oh, important? You ever done that? Right? Some of you have. The reason you're laughing is because you've done it exactly like me. And you say, aren't we stupid? Now, that can sometimes... Now, for me, there was really no harm done, right? Honestly, it was just garbage, and I just went, sorry, Lord, that was a waste of time. Give me that 15 minutes back. No, I can't. It's gone forever, right? But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we get sucked in, and, and we think it's necessary that we, we understand the world. And I just want to remind you today that it's necessary that you understand the gospel, and what you've been given, so that we can then relate to the world in an appropriate way, in a valid way, in a relevant way, in a healthy way. It's if we understand what Christ has done for us, then we're going to be in a good position to connect with the world around us, rather than have the world around us do what Paul was afraid would happen to the Ephesians, namely swallow them up and take them into a bad place. And so we, we see Paul says, Lord, would you open the eyes of their understanding? Lord, that their understanding would be enlightened. Now, some versions, your version might say that he prays, Lord, let the eyes of their heart be opened. 
And that's also very valid. It's not that there's a contradiction or understanding in our heart. Now, in this modern world, we think there is a contradiction. Our understanding is logical and rational, and our heart is goo-goo-ga-ga emotional, right? We think there's this kind of um, conflict between the heart and the understanding. That's not how we should understand this term, the heart, when it's used in the New Testament scriptures. The heart refers in the New Testament to the intellectual faculty as well as the emotional element of the human being. The heart represents the whole inner man, rational as well as emotional. And Paul's desire is that the people at the church would enjoy more than a mere awareness of facts. That they would have facts, gospel facts, doctrine, Biblical truth, that they would have that, certainly, but it would be more than that. But rather that that would have impacted the inner man, their affections, their inner being would be transformed by the truths of the gospel. And so the apostle is praying, Lord, would you, would, you, would you take these truths and apply them to their minds and their wills and their affections and their emotions, all that they are. May all that they are be touched by the gospel so that they may stand in a world that is completely wicked and strange and lost. And so what are the things that he actually prays for. The first is that they would understand the hope of their calling. See that in verse 18? Lord, let them grasp in this world that's calling them, in this world full of the siren calls of temptation that would lure them into danger, may they understand the hope of their calling. The hope of their calling. The word of God has much to say concerning our calling. That, of course, being our standing in Christ Jesus, our calling. In, in Philippians 3, we're told that this calling that we have is a high calling. And Paul is, in essence, saying, Lord, show them that they are called to a high calling. It's high because we're called of God. There's no higher office, there's no loftier calling than man can receive than the the call of the supreme God, the ruler of every planet and the universe as a whole. When a human being hears God calling him to salvation, there's no call that can be any greater. If we received a call today from the president, or a call from a prime minister of a a great country on on the earth here, it would be nothing. We'd We'd be better ignoring it in comparison to the call of God. It's a high calling. Our calling is high because we have been lifted out of the horrible pit that the psalmist describes when he says that he was once in the pit And he heard the call of God and he was raised onto the rock. We have had our feet set upon a rock. And every attempt of man to climb and scramble out of the pit of sin is doomed to failure until the call of God comes. The irresistible call of God. When God speaks to the human heart and draws that heart 
lovingly and graciously to himself the high calling of the gospel, the high calling of the Christian. But the the calling that we have is not just a a high calling, it's a holy calling. 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9 speaks of a holy calling. And that indicates that we are called to be priests to God. Not just that it's a high place, but it's a privileged place. We're there to offer up sacrifices of worship and adoration. Even as we've been singing this morning, as we've joined our voices, there has been, as it were, a, 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 a savor of, of, of praise has gone up into the nostrils of God and God is well pleased with it. What a wonderful privilege is ours to sing these songs and to God, uh, for God to receive them as a sacrifice of praise and to accept those praises uh, through his son. We've been made priests so that we can now approach the one who is called the consuming fire. We have been made priests so that we can now come and offer up our sacrifices to the one who is righteous, who is perfect, who is holy, we're able to offer up the sacrifice of prayer and know that the Father receives it. What a high, what a holy calling. But it's not just high and holy, it's also heavenly. Our calling is heavenly. Hebrews 3 and 1 reveals this. It is a heavenly calling. It is that celestial city that ultimately we will inhabit That place where Christ faces the light, that city that's full of joy because Jesus is there, that city where there is no shedding of tears, where there is no pain and no anguish, where there is no confusion, that city where there is no sickness, be it of the body or of the mind, and certainly not of the heart. We're looking forward to the experience of what is not yet but it is a heavenly calling all the same. So if we've been called of God, we've been called into a high place, a holy place, and it guarantees the heavenly place. What a wonderful thing that God has provided for us, dear Christian. If we could see this, this blessed hope of our calling, if our eyes would be enlightened we would realize that the opportunities we get in life and the things that we think are privileges and the things that we look forward to are dim in the light of the calling that God has given us in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus died for us so that he could gather us to himself and set us on a high place and put within us a holy principle and privilege and give us this wonderful this glorious heavenly opportunity and prospect. If we could see these things, it would be easier to ignore the nonsense. And even that which is more sinister than nonsense, that which would destroy our souls by us getting addicted to it or hooked on it or engaged in it, we would see the shallowness of it all. But secondly, the apostle asks that the Christians at Ephesus would understand the riches of his, their inheritance, the riches of their inheritance. This is a glorious thing, the riches of their inheritance. 
It's not unusual to hear of men being termed rich, isn't it? When I was a little boy in the United Kingdom, the Duke of Westminster was the richest man in the United Kingdom. The richest man. And he was rich because of inheritances that he had been given. He owned massive sections of London. And the real estate in London was just through the roof. I'm sure it still is. But that's what made him the richest man in the United Kingdom. His inheritance. We, we, we know some of the names of rich people from bygone days. Like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. They're famous individuals. And now Bill Gates and, uh, and Zuckerberg and others are, are now the richest men in the world. There's all kinds of men with all kinds of money. And their children stand to inherit tremendous resources in the days ahead. I know some of us wish at times when we're struggling with a a penny here and a penny there. Maybe it would have been great if we had an old rich aunt that we didn't know, right? So there's no grief and pain. An old rich aunt who leaves us a huge inheritance. You know, if the genie popped out the bottle, I'm sure that would be on many people's wish list. Uh, Give me that old rich aunt from far away who has left me as the sole inheritor of all her wealth. And and we we, we look forward perhaps sometimes to receiving inheritances, even as much as we might uh, love those who are going to have to pass away before we receive it. I can remember my wife and I, we, uh, well, really my wife, but I was attached to it because I married to her. But we we were promised an inheritance number of years ago, her uncle Tommy, who was an unmarried man, never married, had a nice house, a decent house, had a boat, he had a boat as well, and Janice and her cousin Alan were going to be the inheritor, uh, the, those who inherited uh, the, 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 the wealth, uh, until, until, until a few months before he died, suddenly Tommy, who had never had a girlfriend in his life, got a girlfriend. And oh, she was so devoted to him. And we know that they went, at least on one date with each other, they went to visit an attorney. And they got the will changed. And she inherited it all. And then we got nothing. It was an inheritance that was promised to us. But it was, it was not an inheritance that was guaranteed. It was an inheritance that faded away. It disappeared before our very eyes. And now we can laugh about it. But I promise you we had a few little grumpy sessions (laughs) shortly after it. But at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, Lord, would you show these people the, the hope of their calling? And would you show them, would you open their eyes that they would see the riches of the glory of the inheritance that they have in Christ Jesus? Not an inheritance that you're just hoping for. Not an inheritance that might fade away, that might disappear like a mirage as you get closer to it. But Lord, would you show them the absolute certainty of what the Lord Jesus Christ has given them, what he has purchased them, what he has given them through his death and through his resurrection. Christian, if we could see what the Lord has given us, it would make it so much easier to resist the world 
that's beckoning us and calling us every single day in a million different ways. If we could see what the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased, we would consider the things of this world to be trash, to be as dung in the light of what Christ has given us. We would realize how stupid we are. How pathetic we are that we allow ourselves to get hooked in even for five minutes to the worldliness that surrounds us. We would be so much more liberated to live for the one who has given us all things. You know, the Lord doesn't just have a house and a boat. He is able to say the silver is mine and the gold is mine. He is rich beyond any description. The wealth that he has displayed here on earth in creation is but a fraction of the endless account that is in the Lord's name. That which we count precious here, gold, is described as being the mere road surface of the eternal place. Now, I know it's metaphorical, but what a wonderful picture And it's right that we think of the golden streets of heaven. That which we wear as rings and spend our money on and treasure and nearly die if we think we've lost it. It's described as being the road surface. In other words, God's riches are beyond our imagination. They are infinite. And these riches are, according to what Paul is saying in our text, they are our inheritance. How can it be? It's because as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. Oh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he would take his inheritance and he would share it with us, that he would not hold back, but that he would consider his heart for us to be so vital that he would give us all that he has. We are heirs of God, according to Romans 8 and 17. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. According to Galatians 4 and 7, we are no more servants but sons. And if a son, then an heir of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that fantastic? We get so caught up with the world. And God has called us to such a holy, high and heavenly calling and shared with us the inheritance that he has given to his son. Hebrews 1 and 2 tells us that God has appointed Christ heir of all things. And if Christ is heir of all things, then joint heirs are joint heirs of all things. There has been nothing Hidden from us. The entirety of the Father's wealth has been brought to us by the Son. And he said to us, here, have it. Nothing held back. Again, with our understanding being so limited to finite and temporal things, there's a sense in which we're not puzzled why Paul here says, Lord, open their eyes. Don't close their eyes first and foremost. There's a place for that, but open their eyes that they may see these things. And then finally, Paul asks in verse 19 there, he asks 
that they would see and understand the exceeding greatness of his power. How are these Ephesians to be helped? As they see that God is powerful. They had experienced these Christians firsthand, the angry mobs. Do you remember the story of how this church was planted in Acts chapter 19? There was a riot and it was because the gospel was going to impact the financial uh, prosperity of idol worship, the worship of Diana. And when the silversmiths and the idol makers saw that, they started a riot and they grabbed a hold of some of Paul's companions, and it was not a pretty affair. It was a very difficult, scary day, even for the Apostle Paul. And these Ephesian Christians are living in that environment, and they knew how powerful the mob could be, how, how hard it would be to resist the angry crowds. They had no doubt experienced the adversary of the devil as well. As, a, as an absolute fact they had, they, they had as a church known satanic uh, inroads being made into the church. You remember in Acts, if he, Acts chapter 20, Paul says, look, some of you even in the church are going to become wolves that are going to devour one another. And some of your leaders are going to rise up and become dangerous people. These people have experienced that kind of stuff. They, they know the power of the devil. They know the manipulations of Satan. They know the power of the lure of the flesh. They living in carnal bodies, but wanting to honor God and being tempted by all of the, the, the sensual temptation that was going on all around them. They knew about the power of the world, but they needed to see that God is powerful too. God's power is by no means ordinary or natural. It's totally supernatural. It's in excess of any situation or any demons or any devil that may per pervertedly seek to draw them away. There is nothing, there is nobody, there is no problem that can stretch the power of God and make God impotent or unable to, to, to be involved and to be a deliverer to them. No matter how much might may be required, God has infinite might, uncalculatable power in reserve. And they need to realize this because it could be scary. It is scary, isn't it? To live in a world that's so powerful with, with government officials that are so ungodly and that have such horrible motives when it comes to even the cause of Christ and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus here on earth. It can be scary. But we need to be reminded of the fact, Lord, open our eyes that we might see that you are powerful. The illustration given to us in verse 20 of this power is the power that was wrought in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power found no difficulty in giving life back to the corpse of his son. No difficulty. Yet to man, that is an impossibility. Death is something that we cannot resist and cannot reverse. Ah, but God can. It's nothing to him to do that. God's power. And Paul longs that we who are weak, we who are fearful, we who are full of concerns and doubts, we who can be scared at times, scared for our kids, scared for the future of our grandkids, he longs that we would have spiritually vivid sight of the power of God 
and of how God so willingly exercises power towards us. Look at verse 19 there, if you will. He says that he wants our eyes to be opened to what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Notice, he doesn't just say, Lord, open their eyes to understand the doctrine of omnipotence. Now that's partly there, but it's more than that. It's rather open their eyes that they might see how your omnipotence affects them. How your power engages them. How your might and strength is given to them. It's God's power toward us. Not just God's power. Not just Lord help them to have good sermons and good studies on the doctrine of omnipotence. But Lord help them in a daily way to see how your power is engaged in the world in which they live. And in their own lives. And in their families' lives. Now of course the doctrine of omnipotence is in itself utterly wonderful. Absolutely glorious. But our text is Paul saying, Lord, let them see how it affects them. How your supreme strength and sheer might works on their behalf. Some men are strong. Just last year, the 2017 World Strongest Man was won by a guy called Eddie Hall who lifted, deadlifted 1,102 pounds. His ankle press was 476 pounds and his leg press was 2,200 pounds. He's a wee bit stronger than me. But you know, when I'm doing a job, maybe on my property and I want to lift something up to the bed of my pickup truck, Eddie Hall's no use to me. Because he's in Newcastle, England. All that strength exists, but it's over there. And even if I was to drive my pickup up his driveway and say, could you help me? I'm not sure he would help me. He'd probably chase me. But here's the fact. The power of God is available to us. And he's not over there. He's not yonder. He's here. He's in our midst. Dear Christian, he is with you. And his power is for you. You don't have to wonder, well, is God going to exercise his limitless power on my behalf, on the church's behalf? We know that that is what he is committed to. It is according to to the working of his mighty power for us and in us. And this blows my mind even through us. He's willing to use us to accomplish his great tasks. Do you see what Paul is driving at? He's basically saying, oh dear Christian in Ephesus, a place so full of temptation, so full of pressure, To disown the Lord Jesus Christ. To go with a flow that is a wicked flow. Dear Christian in Ephesus. A place where you would be beaten up. 
daily if the people had their way. A people where you would be, a place where you would be pushed to surrender. See, oh please see. Lord, help them see the reality of your power and how your power is directed towards them and for them and even is willing to work through them. If you and I could see more clearly, dear Christian, today here in San Diego, if we could see the power of God more, if we could get it, that in a special way it is directed towards the people of God. The heart of God is for us. We would be different people. We would. We would be more Christ-like and more resolved to stand for him in this day and age. What a wonderful prayer Paul prays, isn't it? Lord, don't close their eyes, open their eyes. Let them see this beautiful calling. Let them understand what you've done, where you've brought them. Let them understand what you've given them in Christ, this wonderful inheritance. Let them understand and know how great is the provision and the blessing so that they're not tempted to to go for five minutes pleasure or, or, or six months out of walking with the Lord so they can indulge in the things of this world. Show them that you have given them so much and you're able. Honestly believe, dear Christian, if we could see these things in the way Paul wants the Ephesians to see them, we would be greatly helped. We would be greatly aided. Praise God for the love of Christ towards us and the provision that he's given us. Now, if you're not a Christian, just think of this. All you have today is the Grammys and the Oscars and the money that's in your bank account that's not going to be there for much longer, right? And the car that you take so much pride in, but all it needs is you to park at Albertsons and someone ding that door and it's it's not quite the car you wanted. Isn't that amazing how... All you have are these temporal things. These shallow things. It's all you have. But in Christ Jesus there are riches. There is hope. There is purpose. There is aid and help and strength. Just think how weak you are, dear non-Christian. You, you don't admit it. You're not going to admit it to me. I get it. You're not going to admit it to hardly anybody here. But you know how weak you are. There's strength. Strength to stand for the greatest cause and the greatest one ever. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's all in him. As a sinner comes and repents and casts the shallowness of this world and the filth of this world and the pointlessness of this world aside and as that sinner then turns to the Lord Jesus and finds forgiveness and pardon and hope in him all of these things that Paul mentions for the Ephesians become that person's instantly a life that's hopeless there's now hope A future that's uncertain, there's now the inheritance of God. 
A life that's lived in defeat as sin crushes you day after day. And the things you hate, you still do because you can't help it because you're powerless. Suddenly the power of God comes to aid you and and help you. That's what the Lord Jesus offers. And it's only those who come in repentance and who by faith embrace him can know the reality of it. May God encourage the Christian here to press on in a world that can be scary and can be alluring. We're not the first generation to have lived in a world like this. New Testament Christians, and ever since they've lived in a world that has sought to draw them, there's hope, there's help, there's strength. See, focus on, think on these things. And if you're not a Christian, consider what I've said. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your mercies, abundant mercies, glorious mercies given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that when we have him, we have everything. When we have him, we have the forgiveness of sins and all of the hope and all of the riches and all of the power that flows from him. We thank you for our blessed Savior. We pray for those who are not Christians. Lord, we feel sad for them today. We ask that they would see the the blessings that are in the Lord Jesus and that they would hate more than ever the sin that is stopping them, the pride that is hindering them, the arrogant opinions that are delaying them. Lord, may they despise these things because they hold them back from Jesus. May they flee to him and know the blessings, the joy of being justified, the thrill of being adopted into your family, and even that glorious blessing of knowing sanctification in their lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.